Matthew 18, verse 21. And we're going all the way to the end. Page 823 in the Pew Bible. Please stand. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with the servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And when he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Do not forgive your brother from your heart. Please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's word. Character or is our characteristics would people say, yes, I see, that's a gospel person. They're, they've been marked by the gospel. Are we displaying the characteristics of somebody who has had a life-transforming encounter with Christ? And so in Matthew chapter 18, one of the marks that we see, one of the marks of being a disciple or follower of Christ is a lifestyle of habitual and perpetual forgiveness. If you've been marked by the gospel, if you truly understand what has happened on your behalf, then you will be a person who practices habitual and perpetual forgiveness for the, for the rest of your life. When you read 21 and 22, I wonder what your first reaction is. Peter came up to Jesus and said, and probably with some pride, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I mean, so, so Peter was feeling like, that's going to be a lot. Jesus is going to look at me and say, Peter, wow, you are on the right track. You are coming around. And Jesus says, well, no, I do not say to you seven times. And I wonder if just at that pause, if Peter was thinking, it's probably, probably like three. I mean, because that seven was a lot, and he's just going to say three would be fine. So I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. So, so what's your impulse reaction to forgiving 70 times 7. 
If you looked over in Luke chapter 17, I love the disciples' response because this is really my response, is they say this, when Jesus says 70 times 7, they say, increase our faith. In other words, I don't have the capacity to forgive like that. You're asking me to do something I just can't do. So you're going to have to increase something because, whoa, 70 times 7. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a struggle doing it 7 times. But 490 times. Jesus, you're going to have to supply something to me in order for me to be marked by this gospel of forgiveness. And so I want to explore this characteristic this morning. And I want us to be careful here because in a sermon we just can't cover every aspect of forgiveness. There are consequences to actions and there are all kinds of things that happen in your lifetime. And we all experience sort of a garden variety need for forgiveness. Somebody hurts your feelings and you have to wrestle through those feelings with that person. And that's something that you just... Your whole life. But many of us here are marked by really, really significant events that are just not that simple. And so I would want you to listen carefully and try to pick up some principles, but I'm not going to be able to take your particular situation and say, this is exactly how you should address it. So it's something that you're going to want to go home and chew on, something that if you're wrestling with a particular issue to to call your elder, or you could call me and say, I just don't understand how I think this way about this particular situation. So let me pray for us before we begin looking at it. Lord, um, there's a tremendous need for forgiveness. And our immediate impulse when we hear your words is to just say, that's impossible. It's impossible. But we know it is possible because of what you've done. And so I I pray for these people here and for myself that we would hear your words. We would take that which will help us move forward in a relationship or a situation that requires forgiveness. That you would just help us hear just your words today and, and not my words on this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at this topic in these two ways. First of all, I want us to establish a base of operation. And then I want us to look at how we extend forgiveness in three different areas. If you're going to be a forgiving person, you're going to need some fuel, like the disciples were saying, increase our faith. You need to give me something that helps me then forgive my brother or sister. And so we want to look at, a, at the base of operation, which is in this parable. And then I just want to look at three different areas where we extend forgiveness. First to the repentant. Somebody has hurt you and they've asked for forgiveness. They've said they were sorry. And then how do you walk through that? A few thoughts on how you would do that with unrepentant people. How do you forgive somebody who's not repentant? 
And finally, how do you forgive yourself? So let's establish a base of operation. We can see it here in this parable. Jesus is understanding the disciples are bewildered as to exactly what he's talking about. And whenever that happens for the disciples, quite frequently, and I love this about Jesus as a preacher, he just brings it all the way down to the bottom shelf. And he tells a very simple story that any child in here could understand. He says, I I understand you guys are going to struggle with this, so I'm going to give you this very simple story, and it's going to help you understand what I'm talking about. The kingdom of heaven could be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees and implored him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. If you go to war with another country, especially if you're having to cross a canal of any kind or ocean, the first thing you do is you establish a beachhead. And a beachhead is where all the supplies are going to come in as you sort of work your way out into the country. And so Jesus' supply is giving the disciples a beachhead. I want you to see, disciples, as you sort of extend forgiveness out into your world, you're going to need a constant supply of fuel. Something's going to have to be coming into this place so that you can turn around and offer forgiveness. And that beachhead here is the immeasurable forgiveness of God himself. A king returns to his own country. He has left people to manage his affairs. And now he's ready to settle accounts. He uses a financial term. He's the king. Everything really does belong to him. He's kind of got a ledger. And he's coming back to say, okay, let me see what you did with the stuff. And I'd like to have, have it back. And one of his servants apparently didn't think the king was ever coming back because he was acting like the king. And you know that because he terribly mismanaged the king's funds. This uh, this uh, 10,000 talents is hard to get a rough equivalent, but I think the closest we can say is it's uh, like $60 million. It's an impossibly large sum. There isn't any way the servant can give it back. And the servant knows that, and the king knows that. And so the servant falls on his knees, understanding that he deserves justice. And instead he pleads for mercy or grace from the king. And he says, even though he can't, I'll I'll pay it back. And I want you to notice in what's really a stunning move, what the king did. There's three things here. First, he had pity on him, which really is not a great translation. A better translation would be moved with compassion or some sort of internal movement, emotional movement towards the person. The, the word here for pity or compassion is, in the Greek, the word for spleen. 
And so it's something right down in your core. You're, you're moving emotionally. You're moving with compassion towards the other person who's asking for forgiveness. Secondly, the king releases the servant, which literally means like setting a prisoner free. But figuratively means he lets the matter die. We'll get back to that in a moment. And finally, he forgives the debt. Does that mean the king forgets about the debt? The king does not just forget about the debt. He has to absorb the debt. He has to pay the debt down himself. He's willing to take on a $60 million dent and say, I'll pay it down. I know you can't pay it down. And I'm going to forgive it. I'm not going to forget about it. But I'm going to take it on and I'm going to own it so you don't have to. And so it's amazing the kind of grace the servant gets here. And so the parallels are obvious for most of us here. The base of operation for each of us in terms of forgiving others is understanding the gospel. And and if you don't have this in the front of your mind, and you you don't constantly bring it up in your mind, you are going to struggle mightily in terms of trying to forgive other people. And here it is. Here's the reminder. The king of all creation, God Almighty, is coming back. He has left you in charge of some things, and he plans on settling an account with you. And he's going to look at you and say, how did you spend your life? How did you spend the resources that I gave you? And that should make you nervous. Because all of us, according to the Bible, we have acted like the king. We don't really think the king's coming back. He would want us to be a king-like person, and that's called sin. And so we have a debt that we can't possibly repay, and Jesus Christ has come down and saying, I'm going to absorb your sin. I'm going to go to the cross for you, and you're going to get something you could have never possibly gotten on your own. And so it's incredible what you get. And you haven't earned one dime of it. And when you have that in mind, when you understand that's the fuel for me to move out into the country, then we'll see how you work out the idea of forgiveness towards other people. So the gospel, the best news we're ever going to hear, is what makes a difference. We're always going to have to work our way back to the gospel. We can't get very far from the beachhead. This is the power supply for all of us as we work out this idea of forgiveness. God is full of compassion. It's not some kind of a grandfatherly figure that the grandson does something wrong and he kind of goes, ah, that's okay. He's moved with compassion from the innermost being toward you, even though you're not moving towards him. And then the king or God releases us. He sets us free. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been set free from the law of sin and death. 
So we're like prisoners. We've been let out of prison. We've been released. And finally, the king forgives. He doesn't forget about our sin, but he pays it down on the cross. One of the last utterances of Jesus on the cross was, it is finished. That's an accounting term. And it's like a stamp that you would put on a bill and it would say, paid in full. And so he, on the cross, he understand there, there was a debt that you had, that I had, we couldn't possibly pay it. He paid it, and when at his last breath he said, I paid it in full. You don't have to pay any of it yourself. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so God forgives our debt. It's one so large that we couldn't possibly repay and then it serves as the base of operation as we move towards forgiving other people. Now let's just look at these three different scenarios because I think we find ourselves in them with some regularity. First, how do we extend forgiveness to people who are repentant? People who do say, I'm sorry, I, I, I have made a mistake, I have caused some damage. And the parable here is almost comical as to what you wouldn't do. This is clearly what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't move out then, as this man did, even though he's been forgiven a lot, and find somebody who owes you a little bit. And you notice what happens here? I just love this picture, because I think it might represent me at times. Before anything happens, what does the guy do? He starts choking his other servant. Have you ever felt that way? Before anything can come out of your mouth, what you really want to do is just start choking. That somehow makes you feel better for one second as you watch the guy's eyes just begin to bulge out of his head. Maybe that's, maybe that's just me in that situation. <laughs> maybe you're not going to come back next week and go, my goodness, that's the pastor. <laughs> And he owes him $100. He's been forgiven $60 million. And his friend owes him 100 And he can't find it in his heart to forgive. And Jesus says some very sobering words at the end of the parable. If you're going to act this way... So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If, if you're going to continue to turn outward towards people that you have to move in forgiveness, but you're going to have a choking mentality, then you're going to struggle with being forgiven by God himself. So let's take this example. I have backed into you. Not literally with my car, but emotionally. I have backed into you, and I have caused a dent. And let's just say I've caused you an emotional dent of $1,000. I realize I cannot pay the emotional dent back. If it was your car, I could. I could just say, I think I've caused $1,000 damage to your car, and I could pay it back. And you would probably say, yes, I would want you to pay it back. But if it's an emotional dent, which is what most of us are dealing with, how do you pay that back? It's not that easy to pay that back. And so 
I want us to see how the king does it. First, he extends forgiveness. You would say, Paul, if I said, I'm sorry, you would say, I forgive you. And then when we walk away from that conversation, what has happened to the $1,000 dent? Has it gone away? It definitely has not gone away. Who's holding the $1,000 dent? You're holding the $1,000 dent. I may feel badly about it, and I might want to to move toward you in a a very positive way, but you're still owning the $1,000 damage that I've done to you. But if you're saying, Paul, I forgive you, then this is what you're saying. Paul, I'm going to pay it down. I'm not going to make you pay. Even though you hurt me, I'm not going to make you pay. And I think we do that in a couple of ways. First, you reflect on God's forgiveness. You understand that he's paying down your debt. He's paid it down. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. What is the burden of forgiveness? The burden is, I would rather choke you. I mean, that's my natural instinct. So it's a burden, not when, when, when I've got damage, to not reach out and choke you. So I've got to say, God, my initial impulse here is to choke the person. And you may be saying that to me. Paul, my initial impulse is to choke you for $1,000. But you're going to forgive it, you're going to pay it down, and you're going to have to go to the Lord first. And so as you reflect on the cross... And you see what Jesus has done for you? You begin to pay it down slowly. Secondly, you move with compassion towards me. Thomas Watson says this, We strive against all thoughts of revenge. You wish them well. You grieve at their calamities. You pray for them and show yourself ready on all occasions to... Relieve them. Have you ever had this feeling that somebody's done something to you and then something happens to them and it doesn't have anything to do with you? And you secretly take delight in it. And you say, yeah, they deserve it. If you're forgiving somebody, you're wishing them the best. You're hoping the best for them. You're not seeking revenge. Now, there may be circumstances of the damage that you can't have the same kind of relationship. I understand that. But in all cases, you can say, I'm wishing them well. I'm hoping for the best for them. I'm not trying to seek revenge. And finally, you release or you let the matter die. I've used this illustration before. A friend of mine who's a forest ranger says this about some forest fires. They can burn underground in organic soil. So you go to a forest fire and you see clearly flames. And you're trying to put those flames out. But the forester said, Paul, but you've got to flood the field. Because if you don't, the the forest fire can really burn underground where you can't see it. And then if it ever becomes a little air pocket, it just blows back up. And becomes a raging fire if you don't flood the whole area. 
And if you're going to let a matter die, if you're really going to forgive me of the thousand dollar dent that I have caused you, then you can't keep bringing it up. You ever done that? You're married, you say you've forgiven, but you accumulate a little ledger, and then when something happens, I got my little ledger. I can knock off all the five things that I said I forgave you for, but really I didn't forgive. It just went underground. And like a little coal, you keep it in your heart so that at any point you can just blow on it and it just becomes a raging fire. Have you met somebody like this? Somebody who's smoldering? You know it. There's something underground. And if you get the right oxygen out, boom, big forest fire. I have caused you a thousand dollar dent. And one of the ways you pay it down is that when we get together, you don't say, Paul, let's try to remember what happened there. And, And you want to remind me of it. And when you don't, it hurts. I would rather choke Paul right now. And I'm not going to. I suffer the consequences. And when I do that, I just pay it down a little bit more and a little bit more. So that's what happens when you're, you're trying to forgive somebody who's repentant. How about forgiving somebody who's unrepentant? It's difficult enough to forgive somebody who's genuinely sorry about it. But what about somebody who's done something to you and they either, they're not sorry about it, or they're just too prideful to even say it, something like that. A guy named Dan Allender had some good thoughts here I want to read to you. Reconciliation, reconciliation is costly for both the one offended and the offender. The offended forgives the debt. The cost for the offender is repentance. Reconciliation is never one-sided, meaning I forgive you and then you go scot-free and you enable him to do it again and again without any consequences. That is not what we're talking about here. Instead, forgiveness is an offer, but not the granting of reconciliation. I think we see this picture in Jesus' cry on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. When the Lord forgave those who crucified him, did he grant to each of them at that moment a place of eternal intimacy with the Father? I don't think so. I believe he was freeing them from the immediate consequences of killing him. They deserve the kind of judgment that occurred in the Old Testament when the Israelites touched the Ark of the Covenant. Instant death. Jesus forestalled their punishment in asking for them to be forgiven. But they would would have, have had to respond in repentance and faith, as did the thief who was crucified beside Jesus. In order for God to grant reconciliation, we must always offer reconciliation when in the face of a rebuke, the offender demonstrates repentance. If the offender demonstrates repentance, clearly in this passage, we are supposed to extend forgiveness. 
Repentance, deep, heart-changing acknowledgement of sin and a radical redirection of your life. But we need not extend restoration and peace to someone who has not repented. A forgiving heart cancels the debt, but does not lend new money until repentance occurs. The offender must repent if true intimacy and reconciliation are ever to take place. Peace at any cost is not true forgiveness. You hear what he's saying there? You have a, a, a disposition of forgiveness towards somebody. Somebody has done you wrong, possibly terribly wrong. But there can be no reconciliation unless that person has a deep, heartfelt repentance. And if they don't, then you're left with a mighty big dent which is hard enough to work off when they're trying to come to you. But when they're not coming to you, it's even more difficult. And Jesus is saying, when, when I forgive at the cross, I'm, I'm opening up possibilities. I'm, I'm, I'm disposed to forgive you if you're willing to turn around. I'm not going to be bitter. See, if you don't really move in this direction and you hold that in, you're going to become bitter. And so you're going to have to say, I'm I'm disposed towards being forgiving if the person would repent and turn around. Finally, what do you do with the person, or you do with yourself? People have done some terrible things to you, perhaps, but for some, you've done some terrible things. And what you really struggle with is actually forgiving yourself. And I found great help here from Rebecca Pippard in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Several years ago, I had finished speaking at a conference. A lovely woman came to the platform, and she obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to the room where we could talk privately. It was clear she she was sensitive but tortured, and she sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been youth workers at a large conservative church. And they were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. And everyone looked up to them and they admired them tremendously. A few months before they were married, they began to have sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church. She said, to confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal. We felt they wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation, nor could they bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I have ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride, beaming in innocence. But do you know what I was going through, what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think of was, you're a murderer. 
You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. She continued, I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. How could I have taken an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I know the Bible says that God forgives all of our sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed this sin thousands of times. And I still feel such shame and sorrow. I took a deep breath and said what I had been thinking I don't know why you were so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Which is why Martin Luther says we carry his very nails in our pockets. So if you have done it before, then why couldn't you do it again? And she stopped crying. She looked at me straight in the eyes and says, you're absolutely right. I have done something even worse. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. It doesn't matter that I wasn't pounding in the nails. I'm still responsible for his death. Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becky? I came to you saying I had done the worst thing imaginable. And you tell me I've done something even worse. I grimaced because I knew it was true. And I'm not sure this was the approach a qualified counselor would take. But then she said, but Becky... If the cross shows me that I am far worse than I had ever imagined, if the cross shows you that you are far worse than you ever imagined, it also shows me my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing of any, that any human can do is kill God's Son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else not be forgiven? I will never forget the look in her eyes as she sat back and on, quietly talked. Talk about amazing grace. This time she wept not out of sorrow, but from relief and gratitude. I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. You see how each time the fuel for your forgiveness, whatever the situation is right here. If you don't have that clearly locked in your mind that you are far worse than you had imagined and God's grace is far greater than you had imagined, then moving out and extending forgiveness is not going to be very possible. It's going to be a mighty struggle. But because He paid down the debt, you can take a smaller debt and you can begin to pay it down. 
Because he was open towards forgiveness even as people were killing him, you can be open towards forgiveness even if people are unrepentant. And at the cross you see that you've been forgiven of the worst thing. So if you've got one of those sins in your life that you've prayed a thousand times about, you can make it your last one. Let's pray together. Lord, probably all kinds of thoughts here in this room. Hey, what about this situation? Yeah, but what about my home or past? And I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will do the work here, Lord. Just begin to open up our eyes to see you, to see ourselves, to, to, to move towards forgiveness. Lord, I think about the people who are forgiving. What a testimony to the gospel. And I pray that this church would be full of people marked by the gospel of forgiveness. Help us now to think right. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.